Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 128 of X Lapsed. And, uh, you know, a funny thing happened to me on the way to uh, publish last episode. And uh, that funny thing was a message from our podcast service provider saying, Hey, you owe us money. (laughs) You owe us money or else uh, we're going to shut you down. So uh, I am happy to report that we have just bought another whole year at uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com for uh, anybody who wants to hear the stuff that's over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But with that out of the way and all of our futures saved, at least for the for the interim, right, uh, let's get into today's book here, which is a book I've been looking forward to for, uh, well, ever since I finished the last issue of this book. We're talking about Hellions number 6, and this had a January 2021 cover date story is X of Swords Chapter 18, written by Zeb Wells with art by Carmen Carnero. Colors David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale November 18th of 2020. And we open with our customary quote. But this time it's a not by Nightcrawler. For whatever reason, Nightcrawler's been commenting a whole heck of a lot on these Hellions issues. Not today, though. This is a quote from someone called Tarn the Uncaring, who uh, seems like he might be a rather brutal sort. Uh, I sure hope we don't run afoul of him today. I sure hope he's not that character I don't recognize on the cover. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Double page spread of creds and the roll call. Havoc, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. We open with our Hellions arriving in Araco via a dryad, the Dryador Gate. Now, the difference between a Krakoan Gate and an Arakan Gate, or Araki Gate, rather than being like all sort of green and floral, these Araco ones, or Araki ones, are uh, very thorny, very thorny looking. Now, if you recall, Dryador had fallen way back like a hundred years ago when we started this thing. And so, this wasn't the most hospitable trek. All the Amenthes, the demons, they're all just in the way there. Now, the Hellions, they're hurting for certain. Havoc is even missing an eye, which he had to use to pay a bridge toll to some uh, hippogriffs, whatever they are. Havoc, as you might assume, is not pleased now being a cyclops. Huh. And he uh, lashes out at Sassy Sinister, and it's uh, as unsettling as it is funny. Off to the side, Empath is beginning to realize what a monkey's paw wish it was having Greycrow as his slobbering slave. Greycrow's constant compliments are starting to get on his nerves, and uh, yeah, I, I could see that happening. Then our heroes run into 
Tarn the Uncaring, who is uh, rather keen on mangling mutants. Psylocke tersely fills him in on the situation. You know, they are here to get those ten swords of Arako. Because, you know, they're here to steal them. That's their thing. That's the whole mission. Tarn laughs because, as he and we already know, the Tournament of Swords has been underway for a while now. It's like three or four issues of this stuff gone down already. Havoc turns to Sinister, and it starts to become clear that this whole trip was just a wild goose chase. Or, as Tarn puts it, a dullard's errand. Now you see, Sinister had other motivations for coming into Arako, and it had nothing to do with gathering any swords. Havoc presses him, but he ain't talking. And so Tarn decides to read Sinister's mind and share with the rest of the class. So here's a rub. Sinister is here to add Iraqi mutant DNA to his collection. He is a collector of DNA, of course. Tarn introduces the Hellions next to the Locus Vile, a collection of really bizarre and disturbing mutants who answer directly to him. And let's meet them in an info page. This is the Locus Vile. First, their leader, maybe their creator, Tarn the Uncaring. He's described as a sculptor of genes who can bend the, hel- the helix at his will, which kind of makes him sinister-ish enough to draw some parallels with our, you know, our sassy supervisor here. We have the vile. They are Mother Rapture, who is described as being the tamer of the bladefish, which doesn't help much. We have Hex Butcher, who has to constantly be eating in order to maintain his powers of speed and strength. Sick Bird has brittle bones and spine spikes. Mudgear the Enchanter is covered in tumors and has a gross disfigured arm which spews death. Then there's Amino Fetus, a giant mutation who cannot be allowed to eat. And I tell you what, these are some very, very bizarre characters. Very, very gross. Um, They all wear emotionless metal masks. Uh, They seem... Kind of like uh, Sinister's own eventual chimeras If uh, they didn't cook all the way, right? Like those bodies that Nanny found in the metal drum at the orphanage It's just really, really disturbing stuff here The, the, the mud gear covered in tumors with just spewing Ugh, gross Really nasty stuff here, really nasty group Now while Tarn wraps up his introductions Sinister produces a little box of genetic collection drones And they look like tiny mechanical mosquitoes, which, you know, actually makes a whole lot of sense considering their purpose. He lets them loose into the sky, and, uh, well, I mean, we got two groups of uh, super characters here. It's, It's time to fight. And you see, Sinister needs this battle to go on long enough for his drones to return, you know, chock full of Iraqi DNA. Now, the Locust Vile takes the first shot. And, uh, well, uh, they, uh, they blast Nanny's top half clean off. You know how she's an egg, right? She, you know, she's got that seam in the middle. Well, the, the top half is gone. Blown off. Just pieces. Empath sees this, and he nopes the F out. You see him running like a, like a cartoon character into the horizon, and as he does so, he frees Grey Crow from his mental servitude. The fight continues, and... Uh, you ever play, like, a role-playing video game? You know, like a, like a Dragon Quest, a Final Fantasy, something like that. Uh, maybe a Western one, whatever. 
And you ever, in doing this, find yourself encountering an enemy maybe just a little bit off the beaten path, right? Like, you're, you're exploring the land here, and you know you're supposed to go from town A to town B, but you kind of veer a little bit. You, you wonder what's on the other side of that mountain. So you go, and you see, you see an enemy. You see an enemy, and you figure, you think to yourself, how tough can they be? Let's give them a shot. Then you walk over, and boom, you're one-shotted. You're just dead in one shot. That's kind of what's happening to the Hellions right now uh, in going against the Locust Vile here. They are way overpowered. They are brutal. Now, Havoc, he charges up to Blast. However, before he can, Hex Butcher slides in and chops off both of his hands. So yeah, now Havoc only has one eye and zero hands, and he's bleeding a lot. Mother Rapture attacks Grey Crow with her bladefish, I think. It's, they, they look like fish. They look like blades, so I'm going to assume those are bladefish. Amino Fetus grabs the Orphan Maker and literally tears him in two long ways. I mean, it is an absolute bloodbath here. Uh, the Hellions definitely should have level-grinded back in Dryador. Uh, I, I sure hope they saved the game recently. Now, Sinister is still just standing there, and his mosquitoes return to the box. He hands the box over to Psylocke and tells her to protect it. She questions this. She's like, are you crazy? You know, you led us on this wild goose chase, and uh, we're dying here. To which, Sinister reminds her that they have an arrangement. She takes care of his package. Mine's out of the gutter there, folks. And he'll continue taking care of hers. Oh, man, please tell me this isn't a reference to a Poth from Fallen Angels. Please, I don't want to see a Poth again. So now, in order to clear a path out of here, Psylocke knows what she has to do. She has to get this box out of there because they have that arrangement. And so to cover their tracks here, to cover her, uh, her exit, Psylocke sends Wild Child charging toward the Locust Vile where he is slaughtered. Uh, it's pretty dark, considering that's exactly what Psylocke figured what was going to happen. She just needed to clear a path. Then, as Havoc, Psylocke, and Grey Crow retreat to the gateway, Tarn turns his attention towards Sinister himself and chops him into bits as though he were a sausage, like he's just sliced. And uh, I guess it's a good thing we've got a whole bunch of Sinisters back home, so th this one's not, not a big deal losing it. Info page. It's a long letter from a priestess about Saturnine's stolen horse. Now, this is the horse that was stolen by that weirdo Jamie Braddock before last issue, and then was given to the Hellions during last issue. Now, this was the horse that Nanny was riding on when she got her shell shattered. We jump back to comics, and our surviving Hellions, Psylocke, Havoc, and Grey Crow, arrive back in that weirdo Jamie's royal court in Avalon. Guess traffic in Dryador was all going the other way. This seems relatively quick and painless compared to the trip out. I mean, did, did Havoc have to pay with his other eye? Did, 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 are there any other body parts missing here? It seems a little quick, but uh, you, know how, you know how it is when you're on a long, long trip. The way home is always quicker. So maybe that just extends to Otherworld as well. Now they're approached by some priestesses who threaten to toss him in the clink for horse theft. Their minds are changed, however, by Empath, who empaths on his way in. Grey Crow approaches Empath all buddy-buddy, as though he's still under his control. And then, while Empath's guard is down, Grey Crow stabs him in the gut. 
Andy reminds him that uh, he's going to have to pull himself out of Otherworld lest he suffer a permanent death. Our Hellion foursome managed to return home to Krakoa, and everything seems hunky-dory until, well, everything changes. Suddenly, the landscape is overcome with smoke. Quanan is then stabbed straight through the back by Mr. Sinister. Sinister then shoots Havoc clean in the head. He then melts Grey Crow down to nothing more than an inky puddle. And as Empath drags himself through the portal, he's killed by Sinister as well. Sinister collects his box of DNA samples, then waits a moment just to catch his breath before putting on the performance of a lifetime. He charges back toward Krakoan civilization, crying out that his precious Hellions have all been killed. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, Cable number six. But, uh, we got some stuff to talk about here, don't we? <laughs> I mean, hell, doesn't that just change everything? Right? Wow. Um, where do we even begin here? Uh, this was, uh, certainly not what I was expecting. Really what, not what I was expecting from, from beginning to end. I didn't expect any of this, and that's, that's a good thing. This is one of those situations where... Subverting expectations results in a very satisfying uh, reading experience. Now, where do we start? I suppose we could look at our new villains or our potentially permanent casualties. Um, let's start with the villains. Start with the villains here. Uh, the Locust Vile. I feel like they're kind of the perfect foil for a Sinister-led team, as they're basically a perversion of everything Sinister's working towards, right? And will eventually work toward if the Mora futures are going to actually come to pass, you know, regarding the Chimeras and whatnot. Uh, these vile, uh, they, they appear to be maybe not so much failed Chimeras, but like the most nightmarish versions of them, right? Uh, Tarn the Uncaring kind of lives up to his name, right? In that the vile... It's basically just meat that fights in his name. They look like they're in horrible pain. They look like they're suffering. They look like they're miserable. They're gross. <laughs> I mean, one can't eat. One can't help but eat. One's got brittle bones. They're all wearing these emotionless masks. It's uh, it's pretty brutal. Um, so yeah, they are just here to fight. And boy, can they fight. I was serious when I compared them to... Uh, that scarily overpowered RPG battle that uh, when you first happen across it, you're you're probably like a dozen levels too weak to actually make a dent in this in this uh, in this enemy. And I tell you, I wouldn't mind seeing these characters again, especially if we are headed toward investigating Sinister's black market clones and the eventual Chimera project, because I mean these are. Very, very similar. I mean, they got these weird powers. They feel stitched together. Um, it's it's pretty good stuff. Good stuff here. Um, let's talk about the other stuff here. The potentially permanent deaths. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, but Nanny, the orphan maker, and Wild Child didn't actually die in Otherworld, right? Like, they died on Araco, which isn't the same thing as Otherworld. So... Stands to reason that they can probably be brought back. I, I think that uh, 
I think that the deaths here were definitely intentional to make us think that they might not be able to come back since they're not on Earth. But I don't think they were necessarily in Otherworld when they passed. So I don't see a problem with bringing them back here. Uh, I think it would be interesting to bring them back here, especially characters who we haven't really seen in the flesh, like Nanny, who's been in an egg. And the Orphan Maker, who's in these uh, these armors all the time. I think it'll be interesting to see them in their just natural state. So that, that could be very, very interesting to see. But I do like another subversion of expectations here. I was not expecting Nanny just to get blown away in the first, uh, in the first panel of the battle. Especially when I hadn't really... I mean, this is still a very, very ethereal sort of place here. Everything is sort of just weird. You know, we, it's... I think this might just be me, but I'm, I've been conflating all of these other places because, I mean, we had all these realms dropped in our laps. Then we have Arako, we have the Amenth. I feel like anything that isn't just Earth is all the other stuff. You know, everything else is the same. And so when I saw Nanny die, I was just like, oh, wow, I guess Nanny's not coming back or Nanny's going to come back in a whole different state. And now, you know, now that I'm reflecting on it, it seems like, okay, they, they weren't in Otherworld technically, so we'll probably be seeing them again before long. We have other casualties, of course, uh, but they all died on Krakoa here. Um, let's talk about the characterization here of our, I'd say survivors, but they, they, you know, they, they survived until the end of the issue <laughs> before dying here. Uh, Havoc. Really, really letting Sinister have it all throughout this issue. Just calling him out on all of his BS. Pretty refreshing. Uh, and I didn't expect it coming from Havoc. I haven't really read... I know Havoc was the... He was like the focus character in... Or one of the focus characters in the latest volume of Astonishing X-Men, which I own, but I've never read. So I don't know if he... I don't know how his character was treated during that. I don't know if he was more um, abrasive or assertive. But I don't usually see him as being uh, so assertive as he was shown here in this issue. So it was pretty cool to see him just kind of lash into Sinister. Uh, Grey Crow. Grey Crow is really, really coming around to me as a, a heck of a character to follow here. I loved what he did to Empath. Uh, he just stabbed him in the gut and he's like, hey... It's up to you whether you die. You know, I'm not going to help you through the portal, but it's probably in your best interest to get there because you will die. And uh, it's just a matter of how and if you're ever brought back. I like that. I like that because it shows that Grey Crow is, is maybe thinking a few steps ahead. He's just thinking like, how am I going to hurt this guy? How am I? What am I going to do to this guy? And... Uh, and the thing he chose to do was uh, was pretty was like almost poetic in a way. It's like I don't care which side of the uh, the door you die on. It's that's up to you. <laughs> and uh, Empath did what he had to do to get out of there, and just barely made it through before uh, being being sliced by Sinister. Uh, Quanan. Quanan is a interesting character. I, I can't believe I'm saying that, after, especially after Fallen Angels and. Basically everything that we've seen in X-Men comics since, what was it, X-Men Volume 2, Number 19, where she showed up. The, now it's, the characterization here is just really, really wild. Um, she's got this arrangement with Sinister. I fear that it's about a path. Um, 
maybe, I mean, maybe Zeb Wells can actually do something with a path that makes it uh, a little bit more interesting than what we got in those uh, those six issues of Fallen Angels. Uh, I, I guess I'll reserve judgment for if and when that happens. But what I want to talk about is the fact that we've spent about three or four issues now. Uh, actually, no, we've spent the entire volume up to this point. Establishing this weird rapport between uh, Quanan and Wildchild. The end of the first issue, I believe it was the end of the first issue, either the, the first or second issue, uh, no, it must have been the second issue because they were at the, the home for foundlings. Quanan is attacked by Wildchild, who is just feral, and uh, we spend the next issue with Psylocke just, you know, beating up Wildchild and, and beating him into compliance, basically. Making him a good dog, right? And f- since then, they've kind of been inseparable. They've kind of, He's kind of been working in service of whatever Betsy... Not Betsy. Quanan needs him to do. And here, Quanan has the box of Sinister's stolen DNA. Knows she needs to make her way to the gateway. And the only way to do so is to... Is to have a distraction. And the distraction is in the... Uh, in the, you know, man's best friend, you know, Wild Child, just sending Wild Child right at the Locust Vile where Quanan knew that he was going to be killed. And he was killed in a very, very savage and brutal way. The the uh, the one with the br- the brittle, the bird, the sick bird, hitting him with those brittle spine bits and uh, just brutal. Absolutely brutal here. And heartbreaking in a way that uh, Quanan knew that's exactly what was going to happen. She used him as a tool in order for her to get to the gateway and get the uh, the DNA home because of the arrangement she made with Sinister. Wild, wild stuff here. Um, and let's talk about Sinister. Let's talk about Sinister here and some of the very, very subtle storytelling that we're getting here because the first thing I thought of, and it, it took me a minute to reflect, because Sinister, she, he's here, to get DNA. He doesn't care about the swords. That much is clear. And then I'm thinking like, but he didn't even want to go. You know, if you remember last issue, he didn't want to go to Otherworld. He didn't want to go to Araco. And then I thought a little bit more about it, right? If you remember that scene at the Quiet Council when they were taking the vote, Sinister initially won the vote. He won the vote not to have to accompany the Hellenes into Araco, right? And he, he looked like he breathed a, uh, you know, a breath of uh, relief, right? But then he oddly insulted Magneto's daughter, causing him to swing the vote the other way. And that was on purpose. It's, it's clear now that Sinister wanted to go, but he, didn't, he wanted to make it look like he didn't want to go. So now he's got this awesome bit of deniability and none of it felt out of character. It felt like he was manipulating the the events, and he was. And it was just so well done, so subtle, that he would rig the vote to make it seem like he was forced to go somewhere he didn't want to go. When he, in fact, he was, he had designs on making this trip, getting the DNA, and then he kills his team to keep his secret. I mean, there are no witnesses now. When they bring back Quanon, Havoc, Grey Crow, they're not going to remember any of it. So this is a secret that Sinister's going to get to keep, and it was just masterfully done. Absolutely awesome, the way this all came to be. 
a wonderful issue, an issue that uh, X of Tens doesn't deserve, but uh, a fantastic issue. Uh, I feel like I say this every time we talk about an issue of Hellions. If you're not reading Hellions, read Hellions. It is phenomenal. It is subtle. It is funny. Just some of the greatest stuff that's uh, that's come out of this Dawn of X line. Just uh, top-tier book here. Uh, high, high, high recommendation. But uh, that's all I got to say. And, and it was it was gorgeous, too. It was, it was a good-looking book. Carmen Canaro killed it here. Really, really good-looking book. Uh, just, uh, I don't have any complaints. Don't have any complaints here. A uh, little trepidation that a path might come back, but no complaints about what we got here. So that's what I got to say about Hellions number six. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut on out of here. We got uh, we got a double dose of Damien and a letter from Evan. So let's start with Damien, who's talking about X-Men issues 13 and 14. We'll start with 13. He says, the problem with issues like this is I would prefer them to gradually seed this, bla- this backstory over a number of issues. I grew up in the era where comics would gradually tell a character's prehistory a couple of pages at a time over many months, so regular readers would know everything before the crossover. Nowadays, this information has to be presented within the crossover because they need the collection to include this stuff. Something like Inferno, which relies on over 200 previous comics, can't happen now, because everything pertinent needs to be in the crossover collection. I preferred the old way, but I know that I've lost that battle. We now have a situation where we need data dump issues like this, which are functional rather than entertaining. There's nothing wrong with this issue, as I need to know who Genesis is to understand why Apocalypse does what he does, So, it, but it doesn't get me excited. Excellent points. Excellent points there. Uh, and certainly a sign that the industry and the business has changed. Uh, it's, and it's a change that we don't have to uh, you know, necessarily like or appreciate, but... We definitely need to accept it, and uh, your point is very well taken here. These data dump issues, um, they're just a way of doing business now, because as you said, and I mean you said it perfectly, they're going to be putting out a trade collection, or an omnibus, or an absolute, or whatever the hell they call their their you know big prestige uh, hardcovers, and they expect people to buy those. Those are the big gulps, right? You 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 buy it. You read it, and you're done with it. Everything has to be there, because you're not going to go back. You're not going to be pulling up Wikipedia. Everything has to be there. So data dumps are a thing. And uh, like you said, they are functional, not entertaining. They are uh, utilitarian, right? They are uh, a tool. They're a way to fill in backstory for for folks who who aren't going to read the 200, the 200 comics that lead up to Inferno. You know, and it's a, it's a shame. It is a shame here. If only there were like a happy medium here. It just feels like. Uh, I think the fact that it gets under my the, the reason why it gets under my skin so much is because the pendulum is swung just so far, right? Like I don't need every issue to start with Logan with his razor sharp unbreakable adamantium claws. Uh, you know, swipes his way through the danger room. I don't need that. You know that that was a thing of its time. But I feel like we've swung just so far the other way, and it's just like, it's like here is my lecture on uh, Araco history 101, and and please take your seats and uh, and hold all questions till the end. It it feels like there has to be something in between that, and uh, 
I don't know if the writers just aren't interested in doing that or if uh or if Marvel's just not interested in doing that, but whatever the case, yeah, we get these we get these chapters that feel like we're reading a textbook and uh that ain't fun. That ain't fun. Damien continues. Having said having said that, we get Mahmoud Azra here, which does get me excited. And if you told me Jonathan Hickman would write an apocalypse romance comic, I'd have never believed you. Anyway, until A leaks a sex tape, make my next lapsed. Well, considering we almost saw Gorgon uh, banging a rock <laughs> a couple of issues back, stranger things have happened. But uh, yeah, Mahmoud Azrar here, just a wonderful, wonderful talent here. Uh, really love his work. Um, loved his work ever since I first saw it back in, I believe it was Wolverine and the X-Men. Back, uh, God, I can't believe it was almost ten years ago, boy. God, where'd my life go? But uh, really, really solid work here. I, I'm happy to see him rather than uh, Lionel Yu, whose work I do appreciate. But to me, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's not my favorite. I like it, but it's not my favorite. But let's move on to uh, to Damien's uh, discussion of X-Men number 14. And of course, 14 was the one that heavily relied on reused art from Lionel Francis Yu and just had a little framing sequence for Mahmoud Azrar. Now, Damien says, The advantage I had over you when I first read this issue is that I had not bought X-Men number 12. I first read this material in this comic, and when I finally read the original version, I read it on Marvel Unlimited, so I only ever paid for it once. Now, I'm glad you said that, because that is something I wanted to mention and couldn't find a way to organically mention it. I wonder how many people out there who maybe were just enticed by the crossover only, you know, didn't buy X-Men number 12, but they bought X-Men number 14 because it was part of the crossover, and maybe they went all in on the crossover, so maybe this issue wasn't as insulting as I found it. You know, having spent a lot of time analyzing, writing, and talking about it just a little while before we got to this issue, it just, to me, and I mean, I am a completionist, so I have to accept that uh, I do have uh, certain, I guess, collection handicaps or, or whatever here. I'm going to receive this far differently than someone who uh, who only read 14. You're, you're going to miss out on the fact that... Uh, that the first one was a lie, I guess, maybe? I don't know. But uh, it uh, there is definitely an advantage to only reading number 14 and not reading number 12. Uh, Damien continues, Read in isolation, this issue works quite well as it makes the relationship between Apocalypse and Genesis seem genuine. This is mostly down to the body language and the art. The actual conversation is less convincing. Still, I enjoyed it. And yeah, you know, um, the framing sequences were okay. The framing sequences were fine here. And I feel like had they, you know, even reusing the Lionel U art from uh, issue 12 here, if only they would have included just the scene at the end, just the bit with Genesis visiting Annihilation and the fight and the reveal that Genesis, in fact, won and became Annihilation, Everything else would have been fine. Uh, give me more of Apocalypse and uh, Genesis being passive-aggressive toward one another at the Citadel Garden, right? Where it's like, well, you know, you're weak. Well, maybe you're weak. I'd be fine with that. I'd be okay with that because it is a, you know, a tense and awkward reunion. 
And I feel like there's a lot of uh, opportunity there to flesh out unknown characters and unknown relationships in a very awkward and st- in an unstilted sort of way. It's the... Uh, you know, it's like that episode of the TV show where you have a couple of characters who don't really don't really bump into each other all that often, but you have them get stuck in an elevator. So they have nothing to do but talk to one another. And it's awkward, and it's uncomfortable. And you might come out of it hating each other. You might come out of it learning something that you appreciate. I think had they gone sort of in that direction here and just spent more time on the framing sequence, less time on the repetitive nonsense, except for the one thing that changed... This would have been a far superior story than it was here. And even completionists like myself, who bought them both, would would get something out of it, eh, rather than feeling like they've been slapped in the face. Uh, Damien continues. Of course, once you know that Marvel intended to sell the same pages to us twice with very few changes, then I find myself getting angry at their greed. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's... You know, I'm not surprised by Marvel doing that, but uh, I don't know. I I feel like uh, our creators here, some of our creators here, have this cult of personality around them. And we just buy into, or we're expected to buy into anything that they do and expect accept it as uh, being high concept and genius level stuff. I think that's what gets on my nerves more than anything, is the fact that uh, this writer... Who, for the most part, you know, we all respect. We enjoy a lot of what he does. We, you know, there's stuff we don't enjoy. You know, fair is fair. But I mean, he he did Hoxpox and we loved it. You know, uh, he did the Crucible and we loved it. He did the space stuff uh, for New Mutants and and we loved it. So there's a lot to like about Jonathan Hickman here. I think personally, I expect more than being cheated <laughs> out of him. Uh, the fact that this felt so lazy. Uh, It felt like such a gimme, and like I said, all it did was change the outcome of a fight that could have been done so many different ways. That could have been done in so many uh, more respectful ways of the readership, especially those of us who buy everything, (laughs) you know? Maybe, yeah, I'm not not trying to be... uh, What's the word that uh, that everybody uses for us uh, comic book fans now? Um, entitled. Entitled. That's what we comic book fans are always referred to as being. I don't want to sound entitled, but uh, I buy all your books, so maybe don't sell me the same pages twice. <laughs> please. Please. And I mean, I'm probably going to buy trades, so I'll be buying them a third time, so what are you going to do? Uh, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until I try sending you the same feedback message twice, make my next lapse. And I tell you what, that would have been hilarious. Especially if all you did was, like, change one sentence. <laughs> Just, oh, this is a new one. Oh, that's funny. But uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts. And also, thank you for giving me a different perspective on this issue. As, uh, you know, I, I assumed that, you know, we all felt kind of ripped off. But uh, you raise a very good point there. There are folks who only read 14, or read 14 first, I should say. And did not have the same sort of guttural reaction as I did. So thank you so much. Uh, Next, Evan is talking about, well, what else? X of Swords. He says, I'll be honest, I started this message with the goal of wrapping up by saying, what if the real swords in X of Swords are the friends we made along the way? But my absolute favorite comic series is Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, so I have no problem with absurdity and subverting expectations and working real emotion into such situations. 
In his novel, Sir Apropos of Nothing, Peter David actually made me feel genuine sadness over a character named Sir Sir Umbrage of the Flaming Nether Regions. (laughs) When I I read... uh, when I read that line there, the friend, uh, what if the real swords are the friends you made along the way? I, I, I went into like a weird giggling fit there. Uh, Squirrel Girl, Squirrel Girl, that's a. Uh, oh boy, um, I've never read Squirrel Girl. I'm gonna say that right, right out front. Um, I couldn't get past the art style. Uh, I think it's uh, Erica Henderson draws it, and I, I just. Looking at it, I was just like, "What is that?" I couldn't get into it, um, which is unfair. Is unfair. I mean, every everybody has a style. That's that's perfectly cool. And uh, Reggie and I would talk about that a lot back in the day because he he like you really really appreciated uh, Squirrel Girl, and I was just like uh, too curmudgeonly. I was like, I don't need that. Uh, get out of here with that. But uh, now. Uh, Several years later, I'm gushing over Gwenpool, so maybe, <laughs> maybe Unbeatable Squirrel Girl should be on my list of uh, of things to look into or check out. Uh, maybe I would appreciate it a little bit more in my uh, in my older, softer age here. But uh, Evan continues. But X of Swords has been played too straight for me to buy into this shift. Although it doesn't seem to be a problem for the X Men, the dinner had some great comedic moments, but there was a sense of foreboding there. I'm stalled at Wolverine number 7 for the moment. He's on Marvel Unlimited, of course. So this may have been disproven already. But to get back to my original point, what if this is all an elaborate and atmospherically uneven ruse by Saturnine to show the Iraqis and Krakoans that they're all mutants and they should be united against a menth? In other words, what if the real swords were the friends they made along the way? <laughs> and you know... That is actually one of our one of our theories uh, to this point. Um, it's kind of a, a passive theory, but uh, something that I've been wondering, and I believe I've wondered it out loud a couple times, is I'm expecting some of the apoth the apoths no the um, the Iraqis, uh, someone like an Iska the Unbeaten or the White Sword. Uh, you know, they some of them have been shown to be really honorable, and showing that their feud with the Krakoans isn't personal; it's just business. I could, and, and the fact that Saturnine is positively screwing with everybody, both sides, left, right, and center, she is messing with everybody. I could totally see this ending with some Iraqis and Krakoans, the surviving ones, teaming up against Saturnine, and perhaps also the Amenthi demons. I could definitely see that happening. Um, I don't know if they'll all be, uh, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but uh, I could definitely see them putting their differences aside to uh, take out the. Uh, Take out the bigger threat. I, I don't know if that's what's going to happen, but uh, if I were a betting man, and I'm not, uh, I would suggest that we're probably going to see some, some you know, babyface turns from the uh, from the Iraqis here uh, to take on the Amenthi demons, and uh, maybe even yeah, maybe even do a do a little bit of a uh, an aff- uh, an offensive toward uh, Saturnine. But uh, we will see. We will see, and hopefully, Marvel Unlimited will. Uh, We'll maybe dump some more of these books into the uh, into the freebies, so you guys can uh, you guys can come with me to the end of X of Tens here. It's uh, weird that they would abruptly stop, but I guess perhaps Wolverine number seven was. Uh, I think that was the last book we did that came out November eleventh. Uh, everything else has been November eighteenth to this point, so maybe maybe as we keep rolling, they'll uh, they'll get them in here. Fingers crossed, because uh, I would love for you guys to be able to to keep up and uh, and. 
help me cross the finish line here. Uh, I couldn't imagine, you know, taking a break from this and then going back and knowing where we were at. <laughs> you know, it's just so all over the place. I guess it's a good thing. Uh, I mean, the show ain't going anywhere. We just paid for another year, so it's around. So if you need to catch up, we're here for you. But uh, that's where we'll put a pin in the program for today. Uh, if anybody out there would like to reach out and uh, chat me up about anything you want, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is called 90s X-Men. And for a whole bunch of noise for at least another year, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today I want to thank you all so, so much For making me part of your day today And uh, till next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya